Welcome to Blender Kitchen. This week on Blender Kitchen, we're diving into something nice and spicy, chili peppers. So chili is a fruit, believe it or not. It comes from the genus capsicum, which is a Greek word meaning to bite and probably refers to the plant's spiciness or it's if the feeling like it's biting you when you eat it, which is kind of a weird way to describe it, I guess. Um, capsicum is in the nightshade family. Nightshade includes peppers, um, obviously peppers, um, potatoes, tomatoes, eggplant, also deadly nightshade. Um, and pepper is one of the only nightshades in that group where you can eat the leaves. Most other nightshades have poisonous leaves. However, peppers, um, the leaves are edible. And indeed, some cuisines actually call for using pepper leaves to add increased flavor. So what we're referring to as pepper or chili, um, we'll kind of use those terms interchangeably throughout the episode. Uh, it, those are not the only two terms uh, for what refers to the fruit from the capsicum genus. Um, chili is known by different words depending on where it is. And we'll get into this a little bit when we talk about how chilies got to where they are today. But everyone basically has their own word for chili. And we'll just touch on the um, native Mexican words for it um, because that's where it originated. And so chili, the word that we are using, comes from a Nahuatl word, also referring to the pepper plant, the capsicum. In some parts of the world, capsicum refers to only the sweet bell peppers, um, which you wouldn't really think that peppers um, that are sweet are still part of the same family. They are. Um, Peppers range from extremely spicy to deadly spicy to very sweet and um, really with no spice at all. Um, a good measure for determining how hot a pepper will be would, is how much capsaicin, um, which is the active ingredient, I guess you could call it, in peppers. It's what makes them spicy. The more capsaicin is that's in the pepper the spicier it will be. Um, the reason why it bites, it feels like it's biting you or it feels spicy is because capsaicin actually binds with certain pain receptors in our mouth, throat, and tongue, as well as, you know, throughout the body. Um, we'll get into this a little bit later, but that's really the key role in some of its topical applications. Um, and that's what creates that sensation, that stinging sensation. Uh, capsaicin is basically the chemical version of thorns or stinging nettles, you know, things that um, plants use as a defense to say, hey, don't touch me, don't pick me, don't eat me, leave me alone, which is 
it's such a human characteristic to see something and be like, oh man, I probably shouldn't eat that. Oh, it feels terrible when I eat that. And then continue to not only eat it, but to try and find spicier and spicier and hotter and hotter versions of it to enjoy. Well, not quite so present day. Let's take a moment and stop and discuss the Scoville scale. Now, the Scoville scale is a, a test or a scale developed by Professor Wilbur L. Scoville. It was first developed in 1912, and it measures the heat of a particular chili. It does so by determining how much of uh, the chili needs to be present in a mixture. Let's start over. It... It measures the hotness or the amount of capsaicin in a particular chili by determining how much of a sugar and alcohol mixture needs to be mixed with dried powdered chili of that cultivar or of that breed of chili before it becomes indetectable by the eater. Uh, its first applications were obviously for determining the strength of a chili's uh, pungency, but also apparently it was a real problem with people adding pepper uh, and chili to ginger beer instead of actual ginger to make it spicy, and so it was a way of determining if ginger beer was adulterated. Now today, um, we use high-performance liquid chromatography to determine the level of capsaicin in peppers. Um, again, the higher the capsaicin, the hotter the pepper. It's a more accurate, people have argued. Um, that's not to say that we don't still use the Scoville test. If you would like to see the Scoville test in action, a great place is Hot Ones on YouTube. It's an excellent show. Chefs, celebrities, scarfing down hot wings eating deliciousness covered in pepper. Alton Brown drinks some, I believe, on his episode. It's a great time. So, and today, um, there are hundreds and hundreds of types of cultivars of chili being propagated. And it's still a great way of seeing how a region is changing. For example, a very popular cultivar was the Aleppo pepper, but unfortunately due to the humanity, excuse me, humanitarian crisis in Syria, there is no Aleppo pepper anymore. It can't, it's not really exported, uh, very little of it, if any, gets out, um, and that's just due to the extreme human cost of the conflict in that region that I'm sure other crops are also uh, indicators of how life has changed so much, but um, we're talking about peppers, and the Aleppo pepper is a pepper that's basically disappeared due to the crisis. Speaking of Mexico and discussing the origin of the word chili, uh, peppers or chilies were first domesticated in northeastern New Mexico uh, approximately 6,000 years ago. They are 
uh, one of the first self-pollinating crops that were cultivated in Mexico, Central America, and parts of South America. However, peppers have been a part of the human diet since uh, around 7,500 years ago. Peppers are one of America, the American continent as a whole, including North, South, and Central. It's one of the oldest cultivated crops. Currently, there are more than 400 types of peppers or chilies worldwide. Um, that's a lot for this little podcast to get into. So we're actually not going to really discuss specific peppers um, in very much detail just because there's such a variety and such a depth. Um, and part of that is really a testament to how peppers spread. So how did peppers make it from northeastern, moder- what is today modern Mexico to places like China and Japan and the Middle East. Let's dive into it. Somehow we keep coming back to the blunderbuss that is Christopher Columbus. Uh, You know, he got most things wrong. He was just so wrong about a lot. Um, but that didn't really stop him from spreading his incorrect knowledge about the of the world, and chilies were no different. Uh, much like arriving in America and believing that he was in India, and so calling the native people their Indians, uh, Columbus uh, saw a plant that reminded him of black pepper back in Europe, which, by the way, is a different plant from capsicum. It's It's different species altogether. And so referring to it as red pepper. And that's kind of why pepper is referred to as pepper today. Because Columbus stumbled upon uh, the chili plant and was like, "Mm, that looks like pepper. I'm going to call it pepper. And that's, it's stuck. Uh, Columbus brought chili back to Europe. And through European trade routes, it then moved into um, Asia and Africa. Separately, the Portuguese um, took um, Chile from Brazil and brought that to West Africa. And from there, it kind of moved worldwide to the point that chili peppers now are often seen as native to the regions that they've been cultivated in. You know, no one's no one's really like, oh, I think this came from somewhere else. This, no, this is our chili pepper. This is the New Mexican chili. It grows in New Mexico. This is the shishito pepper. It grows in Japan, you know. And part of that is because chili is a very hardy plant. It can grow in almost any climate in almost uh, any soil type, it propagates very easily in uh, gardens, and indoors and outdoors. It's such a nice starter plant when you're beginning your gardening journey. And that's why we've decided to highlight it in what is looking like it's our first in a series of For the Home Winter Garden Plants. So, in terms of how chilies were used once introduced to uh, 
the rest of the old worlds, they were, they really replaced um, black pepper's uh, place in cuisine and on the table to the point where Hungary, which, you know, is famous today for paprikash and goulash, um, replaced black pepper with paprika. Now, there's an age-old debate about whether it's paprika or paprika, and I am here to finally settle it. It's both. I will use, in my daily life and on this podcast, paprika to refer to the Hungarian pepper, paprika, that's, it's called paprika. Um, it is what botanists referred to as a pungent um, cultivar of, of chili. Pungent just means it's spicy. Cultivar means it's a type, a breed of pepper, of chili. And so Hungarian paprika is this spicy deliciousness. Now there is also sweet paprika that is cultivated and is made, um, but it became so ingrained in Hungarian culture, food culture, that it it invented paprikash. The difference between paprikash and goulash that I could see uh, is really how that uh, paprika is used. Now, in other parts of the world, paprika is not spicy. It's any sweet or non-spicy red chili ground, um, and it's really used for coloring. You know, the more vibrant that chili is, the or bell pepper, if you want to think of it, um, the more of it will be added to a paprika spice blend. So, settled it once and for all. Both paprika and paprika. So, that's that's just a one example of how this plant uh, fits so well, you know, into everyone's lifestyle that it just it was as though it was always there, and it really transformed different dishes into national treasures. And one of the reasons why uh, is food preservation. Many anthropologists once believed that heavy spices were used to mask the taste of rotting foods, but recent scientific discoveries have shown that chili actually kills bacteria. Now, it's not going to save a completely rotted piece of meat, but it does really keep down and discourages the growth of bacteria in foods. So at first it may just have been, you know, we use black pepper to... Um, and heavy spices to preserve this food. Let's just add this chili instead of that. And um, I'm not sure that anyone was distinctly like, oh, yes, if I add more pepper, I will have less maggots in this meat. And I think it was more, uh, well, yes, seeing that, but not saying like, oh, yes, because it's killing the bacteria and more I can eat this longer and feed my family longer, and so it became more widespread. Um, it was very popular, much like corn, 
uh, with the poor because it was easy to grow. You could buy a few seeds at market, replant it in your garden, and now no longer have to go to market to purchase pepper. It was delicious. Um, and many of these reasons really discouraged the rich and upper classes from getting into it. But it did gain popularity with um, the wealthy as well. I became more of a status symbol. You know, spices were expensive in that time. Um, and the more of it you could provide for a dish really just showcased the m amount of money you had to spend purchasing those spices. Um, it was a little bit slower catching on in Northern Europe. And it's believed that this is mostly because Catholics were the ones that brought this plant to Europe um, and through trade routes to the rest of the world. And at the time, the Protestant Reformation was going on, and it was this thing of, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use what the Catholics are using because it can't possibly be good. And so that really slowed introduction into Northern Europe. So that's how that route kind of uh, took from Columbus's blunder on into um, the rest of Europe, Asia, and Africa. Now, the Portuguese, they were bringing pepper with them on their journeys and, and trading it as well, but they didn't really add it to their diet. The Portuguese mostly used pepper um, to prevent scurvy on long voyages, and this is because pepper has a very high content of vitamin C. Um, chilies are full of vitamins, actually. Vitamin C, uh, which prevents scurvy. Vitamin A, beta carotene, which is important in preventing blindness. Uh, vitamin B6. And, of course, capsaicin, which is not a vitamin, but which is a very effective pain reliever. Um, how did they discover this? I, it was this thing of, you know... When you eat it sometimes, or when you touch it, your hands feel numb. And it was discovered um, and later scientifically proven that over time, over long periods of time, it could work for chronic pain by sort of deadening those nerves. And, um, you know, with dead nerves, you don't, you're not really getting a lot of pain. So it does work as a long-term topical agent. But I'm not... Uh, well-versed in health topics. I know we have referenced sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine often on this podcast, but we're going to reference them once again because in their episode, Chili Peppers, they really go over uh, how uh, the chili plant was used medicinally. So we're not really going to get into that. It's not really our forte here. And moving right along, into the present day. On a different note, I know that got really dark there for a moment, but we're going to take a step back. Uh, pepper, unsurprisingly, is the main ingredient in pepper spray. Um, it burns when you put it on your skin and in your eyes, so it makes an excellent deterrent. Um, across places that 
uh, where people and farmers coexist with Asian and African elephants, farmers have found it um, helpful to plant pepper or chili bushes as a border around their crops. This really brings down the number of human and elephant conflicts, um, which are extremely dangerous and usually result in loss of life. Um, elephants love eating and grazing. They usually destroy farmers' crops in the process, but they are highly sensitive to the pungency um, from pepper plants. So by planting buffer crops, essentially, of chilies, farmers are able to protect their crops from raids um, by hungry elephants, both protecting the elephant population and the human population, which is, uh, that's fantastic. You know, that's, that's what we're here for on this podcast. Food and people working together to create a better life for everyone involved. And that's about all we've got. Uh, last week, we didn't really have a recipe because, you know, how do you break down which taco to cover? But here, we're going to take a look at a dish that is basically entirely chilies. And it's going to be delicious. No, it's not chili. This dish isn't quite entirely made of chilies, uh, but it does call for a good number of capsicum um, members of the capsicum family, and it's also just delicious. It, this is shakshuka. It's a Middle Eastern egg dish that is excellent at any time of the day and reheats really well. The ingredients are three tablespoons of olive oil, one small onion sliced, two garlic cloves minced, one red bell pepper sliced finely, 750 grams of chopped tomatoes, preferably fire roasted. Um, I'm going to go with one can. That's a can of fire roasted tomatoes. Fourth teaspoon of smoked paprika or paprika a quarter teaspoon of Turkish paprika, two teaspoons of ground cumin, one teaspoon of ground coriander, half a teaspoon of harissa. Um, harissa is a spicy chili paste. It is amazing. It's like everything smoky and wonderful and delicious and just mouth-watering um, that you could imagine. But if you're not into that much spice in one dish, you can substitute a teaspoon, a half teaspoon of cayenne, a quarter teaspoon of turmeric powder, one teaspoon of salt, half a teaspoon of freshly ground black pepper, which I always leave out because I personally don't like the taste of black pepper, and six eggs. In a large frying pan or saucepan, ideally an iron skillet, Fry the onions, garlic, and pepper in olive oil until they're fragrant and soft, or about 10 minutes on medium-high heat. Add all the spices and stir. You're going to cook for about two minutes. You really want to allow the heat to release the oils. Add the tomatoes and simmer for an hour or until the onions and peppers are very soft. Um, 
you're going for more of a stew consistency here. Um, when you're cooking, just make sure that you're adding water here and there. It's going to want to dry out. It's going to want to become very thick and then it'll begin to burn before it's ready. So just a splash of water as you go. Crack in the eggs and let them simmer for about five minutes or until the whites of the eggs are a little firm, um, but the yolks are still a little bit runny. Um, I found the best way to achieve this perfect egg in the middle of your tomato chili stew is to lightly cover the frying pan with a pot cover so that the steam kind of just cycles throughout the dish. And that's it. It's fantastic with toast um, by itself over rice. It's very versatile and it, or just on its own. It's delicious and I'm probably gonna make this this weekend. Thanks for tuning in. The recipe this week was from Chili. Um, it's part of a global history, the edible series. Um, a lot of our information today came from that book as well. Not entirely, but it was very um, influential in my research. I'm going to throw up the book on the Instagram so you can take a look there and link to where to purchase it on the Twitter. So the handles for those on Instagram were at Blunder Kitchen and on Twitter at Blunder KTCHN Pod. See you guys next time.